0: Blue Cliff Record, Case 13, Barling's Silver Bowl. A monk asked Barling, what is the diva sect? Barling replied, snow in a silver bowl." Please sit comfortably. Tonight's Tei is dedicated to Dr. Mary Ridwan Roshi, my co-teacher here in the Zen Group of Western Australia, and whom I am very much missing on our great seven-day session here at Origin Centre. Yeah. As part of tonight's Tei Show, I want to uh, tell the story of Mary's journey on the Zen Way, um, and later recount a dream that she had which was vote by tonight's uh, Kaun. Um This is not something that, she as she put it, that she would do on her own account. And it's one of the boons of co-teaching that we can do this for each other. Um, so th- if we, we start with Mary's uh, Zen bio. And um, this I'd... I'd This is in in her words, so I'm just recounting what um, uh, she told me of her biography. We standardly do this, um, uh, so it's good to be able to do it for Mary here. She writes, I became interested in Zen and in Buddhism and Hinduism during my school days, partly as a result of my mother's former school teacher having a nephew who was a Zen Buddhist. What does he do? asked my mother. He sits cross-legged on the floor looking at the wall. Wow! Wild! I want to do that when I grow up! (laughs) Thought I. (laughs) Also, I was berated by my ill-tempered housemistress at boarding school who had lent me the Penguin book on comparative religion when I told her in response to her question about what I liked about the book. Mary said, I like the bits about Buddhism and Hinduism. She told me I was sinful and wicked and that the point of the book, who knew, uh, was to prove that Christianity was the only true path. (laughs) Some years later, I became interested in the New Zealand student I met on my first day at university, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He was named Alan Marrett who also shared an interest in Zen. In due course we went to our first Seven Day session at Throssell Hole Priory in Northumberland which was then an old farmhouse using a cow shed as the dojo. It was run by Dai Shin, who had been given authority to teach by Kenneth Roshi an Englishwoman who was the founder of the Shasta Abbey in the United States. Alan continued sitting with some monks from London who were also associated with this tradition, but I found them cold and rigid and did not join in with the small group of sitters, but took up yoga with a marvellous teacher who regularly studied with Iyengar in Pune. I practised intensively and would have probably taken up yoga more seriously and gone to India myself if Alan had not got a fellowship in Japan. In 1976, Alan and I went to live near Kamakura. He planned to find somewhere to sit. We planned to find somewhere to sit and initially sat at uh, Enkakuji, the main Rinzai temple in Japan, founded in 1282. Lay people were allowed to go and sit there at weekends. And we went a few times, but it was difficult because it was not aimed at teaching lay people, merely allowed us to join in Zazen with the monks sometimes. All the teaching was in Japanese, the monks got hit very loudly. It was terrifying. When we heard about Yamada, uh, Yamada Roshi's group in Kamakura that catered for foreigners, we went there. I looked through my diaries from that time and it took weeks and weeks of going to Zazenkai and doing Sozan lectures for three hours non-stop in Seiza with one of Yamada Roshi's leaders, himself a Roshi before we were finally allowed to do Sosan with Yamada Roshi himself. Uh, sosan is where everyone comes in order in Doksan. In While we're sitting there regularly and staying in the beautifully beautiful gracious but decaying Kamakura house where many of Yamada Roshi's students were allowed to live, I met Bob Aitken, uh, for the first time. He was not then a Roshi, and we called him Bob, though we treated him with respect. I had been warned by the other occupants of the house that he would be visiting and that he had a weak heart, so I was to be very careful to behave myself and not give him a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) I did a five-day session in Kamakura which was very intense and made me aware that I was committed to that path. So it was a wonderful surprise when we discovered soon after moving to Australia that Aiken Roshi had agreed to visit Sydney to lead session there. The first session he led was in 1979 and I did not do that one as I had just given birth but I was able to attend some of the ones held soon afterwards where we were able to take children too, with each parent sitting for half the time. In late 19- 1982, I did Sishin with Joko Beck. For some reason, uh, Aiken Roshi was unable to travel to Australia that year, and so he had asked Joko to lead Sushin in his place, adhering to normal Diamond sunka practices. This was the first seven seven-day Sishin I was able to attend full-time and my mother, with Alan, was there to look after both our children. I remember the year only because when I went to Sishin, Lucy could not walk and when I got home, she walked across the room to greet me. After that, I attended session regularly with Aiken Roshi whenever I could And when he stopped coming after 1999, I went to Sushin with John, it must be 1989, I went to Sushin with John Tarrant, who came in his stead. I also did another session with Joko Beck in Queensland in 1987. Both of Joko's Sushins were very, very tough. She was a challenging teacher and often made me angry. For example, one day she moved everyone's cushions so we were each sitting in a different place, but the fire of fury provided the energy to deepen my resolve. In 1992, after my marriage broke down, I moved to Perth to live with Madruru. Soon after I arrived I took myself to the Zen group of Western Australia place in Northbridge. Um, to check out Ross Bolatter, not yet yet a Roshi, and attended my first doxan in a shed in the pouring rain. Um, this is a, uh, a garage, uh, like a garage with a pit uh, for repairing a car, and had uh, sleepers, uh, wooden sleepers over the top, and uh, yeah, it was a uh, yeah, um, yeah. I I met Mary, she came to Doxan, I had not met her before uh, meeting her in Doxan, so I gave her a koan, and she gave this beautiful response to this koan that she was not familiar with at all, and um, when she left I found tears streaming down my face, and it was quite rare for me to have that in Doxan, um, or anywhere else, and there was something that in that meeting that in a way sealed uh, a future that we are still uh, living uh, out. Yeah. Over the following years I became deeply involved in the group and was honoured to be invited to take the role of Tanto at Ross's transmission ceremony in 1997. In 1999 I sailed away for three years and a day to the land where the bong tree grows and returned to WA for a few months but then moved east to be nearer to my children. I continued to work with Ross, though so returning regularly to work with him intensively, along with Glenn Wallace and Arthur Wells, my co-students, before he gave me permission to teach in 2005. In 2014, while living in Indonesia, I flew to Perth for Sishin, followed by my transmission ceremony. So just one little um, story here with with Mary um, This was after Glenn Wallace's transmission uh, in Dunedin, and uh, we were staying with Glenn. And, uh, we each did a series of short talks in the dojo, um, actually the, I think it was the night of his trans, after his transmission, and I gave one on gratitude, which was warmed by the fact that I had mislaid my wallet several times that day, and each time I managed to find it again. Uh, each time I had a back in my hand, I'd mumble. Thank you, universe. And I continued. I'm sure there must be a better way to express that. Mary chimed in. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, we take up uh, uh, Blue Cliff Record, Case 13, Parling, Silver Bowl. A monk asked Ba Ling, What is the Devaset? Ba Ling replied, Snow in a silver bowl. Uh, we know that Ba Ling Hua uh, Jian uh, lived during the tenth century. We don't have any dates for him, and was the successor to Yunmen, Wenyan. Uh, who lived from 80, 862 or 864 to 949, one of the great teachers in the flowering of Chan during the Tang Dynasty. Uh, all the, uh, Yunmen Men was the founder of the Yun Men School, probably unwittingly. Uh, I think this were, the schools were largely conceived after the fact. It certainly was probably not his intention to found any such thing. Um, one of the five schools of Chan, the others being the Sardong, Linqi, Guayan and Fayan schools. When the time came for Ba Ling to receive transmission from Yunmen, instead of submitting the customary and obligatory composition on the profound principles of the Dharma, Ba Ling presented his three turning words instead. Turning words are words that uh, turn you about uh, and um, reveal the way to you. Uh, So these are the three turning words. Um, There's a question and an answer. What is the Deva sect? Snow in a silver bowl. What is the way? A clearly enlightened person falls into a well. What is the sharpest sword? The dew on the top of each branch of coral holds up the light of the moon. Yun-men was mightily pleased by Ba-ling's turning words and said to him, Someday on the anniversary of my death, just recite these three pivotal words that will be sufficient to requite my kindness. Later when Ba Ling took up residence as a teacher he did not create a document of succession for his students he simply employed his own three turning phrases that his teacher Yun Men had approved. So what is the Deva sect? A Deva is short for Deva. But the Buddhist teacher who lived in India during the 3rd century and whose school was regarded as heretical. Not only heretical, totally wild. Um, uh, he simply... I'm sorry. Um, so... Yeah, Kanadeva, uh, who lived in India during the 3rd century and his school was regarded as heretical. That was not until he truly met the 14th ancestor, Nagarjuna, in the following interchange, where Nagarjuna, esteeming his capacity, transmitted the Buddha mind school to him and invested him as the 15th ancestor. And their encounter goes as follows. Kanadeva Arya went for an interview with the great personage Nagarjuna Arya. Knowing this was a wise man, Nagarjuna had an attendant place a bowl full of water before Kanadeva's seat just as Kanadeva reached the gate. What a beautiful offering. He arranged for this bowl of water for him, knowing where he would be sitting seeing this full bowl of water Kanadeva at once took a needle and put it in the bowl and then went to meet Nagarjuna formally with great joy of realisation it's beautiful yeah, not a word was spoken yeah, beyond all of that the placement of the bowl of water, the settling of the needle in it, um, uh, the needle barely distinct from the water. Um, It represents the joyous accord of teacher and student uh, and indeed uh, the intimacy of each of us with the vastness. And this image of the needle in the bowl of water transforms over the centuries into snow in a silver bowl. Um, It's not only that the dharma uh, gets passed on from generation, but the actual expression of the dharma uh, shifts its metaphors, its images. You can feel that the, the Transformative power and creative power of great teachers who, trained, who changed, uh, who adopted the imagery and changed it and refined it and created new imagery out of that. That's an intensely creative process. Talking of which, um, in the Song of the Precious M- Mirror Samadhi, a poem attributed to Dongshan we read, the Dharma of just this is passed down from the Buddha in confidence. The Dharma of just this. What is the Dharma of just this? Well, it's night, the lights are reflected in the windows, Uh, each of us sitting here, um, the Hearts stopping flowers on the altar the candles the floor the Dharma of just this is passed down from the Buddha in confidence you know your, your true nature in one way is, is secret it's hidden Uh, In another way, it is completely and absolutely open. Uh, Tonight, it's yours. It's entirely personal. Hmm. (laughs) Charles says, Take good care of it. How will you take good care of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because many senses, I guess. Stay with your practice. Have a good night's sleep. Uh, feel uh, your feet touching the floor, in, kin, hin. Open to it. The Dharma of just this is passed down from the Buddha in confidence. Tonight it is yours. Take good care of it. A silver bowl filled with snow The bright moon concealing egrets. Categorised, they are not the same. Inchoate, the place is known. You know, it's better not to unpack it um, here. This is your relationship to the vastness. Silver bowl filled with snow, bright moon concealing egrets. Categorised they are not the same. Mm -hmm. There is individuality. You are different within that vastness. Incoate the place is known. That is so deadly in terms of known. Yeah, because you know the Dharma is beyond knowing and not knowing and all of this and he dares to use known. Incoate uh, Fast empty unknown unknowable none uh, last night i am um, stumbled at the lines at the beginning of the at the beginning of the third watch uh, before moonrise don't be surprised if there is meeting without recognition Um, when you you truly meet the vastness, you are not not other than that. Uh, How can one talk of recognition in those circumstances, in that experience? Awakening to our true nature is personal, yet is, it is recognisable in measure to someone who is experienced in the same manner. When a student comes to me with a genuine experience it feels as if we are sitting together among the grasses and flowers of a same meadow. There is a sense of ease and inevitability of being at home together. The experience of awakening is akin to the student's wedding to the way, while a long journey of working with subsequent kaans corresponds, if you will, to marriage, which is to say the integration of the way into our life, its embodiment, our learning to express it even as it is inexpressible, and finally becoming intimate with it to the point that it is forgotten entirely. So what is snow in a silver bowl? By way of response I will recount uh, Mary's dream um, which was uh, the, uh, in response to this koan of snow in the silver bowl. But first the prelude, there's a little pro, a prelude. Uh, it's entitled Koans and Synchronicity by Mary Ridwin. This is a story of connections, of dreams, of talking. This is a story from the Tao. Sometime in November 1994, I was talking with Ross on the telephone. At the same time, he was working on a musical piece based around the three daughter hexagrams of the I Ching. I told him how I'd been reading about Zen in my mother's copy of the Peers Encyclopedia. In particular, I told him about one section which I quote below. It goes, the student must learn to act spontaneously without thinking and without self-consciousness or hesitation. This is the main purpose of the Kaan, the logically insoluble riddle which the student must uh, try to solve. One such is the question put by master to pupil. A girl is walking down the street, is she the younger or the older sister? At this point Ross asked me if I remembered my response to Barling's Cohen Snow in the Silver Bowl. I could not recall it, but a few days later I looked it up in my notes. I had written that I had told John Tarrant Roshi that I was snow, that it was me, and I told him where I was going. No tracks. Is there any trace of you? he asked. Yes, I replied going on to tell him about my dream which had culminated in my disappearing into snow, the dream I call my three-girls dream. I did not tell him the whole of the dream in detail, but I reproduce it below. The three-girls dream. Once upon a night time in a land far away but achingly familiar is a place where everybody meets. It is inside a building but it is outside too, public space. It reminds me of Sydney's Queen Victoria building or the Strand Arcade. And yet I know that it is neither since, although I cannot see the sky through the opaque skylights, I know from the sepia tinge of the light and the coldness that it is snowing outside. Many people are walking around inside the building but my attention is focused on only four, three young women and one man. The woman's attention is also focused on the man. The woman's attention is also focused on the man. They are all in love with him. He is young and good looking with an animal energy that his tight blue jeans do nothing to disguise. And then brackets. a nice shot here of, of crumpled blue jean crotch. The women are all the same age but look strikingly different. One is small with straight, short, dark hair and she is pretty in a sharp, pinched kind of way. She is always accompanied by her mother. One is blonde and soft. She is always smiling, calm and confident. She has several younger siblings whom she looks after tenderly as well as doing her painting. The third girl has flowing red tresses and pale skin. She wears white clothes that emphasise her identification with pre-Raphaelite heroines. It is this girl-woman whom the young man apparently loves. But we see them all wandering separately around the building, passing on different levels, across landings, passing and passing. The lovers meet secretly. She has to go outside the building to meet him down at the docklands where he lives. She has to go down badly lit alleyways and put up with the taunts of the old men who live there. Dirty old men who chew tobacco and leer and make lewd comments when she passes. She does not mind. She's wrapped in the innocence of true love that she believes protects her. One day the blonde girl asked the young man if he will pose for her. She has an art examination the next day and must produce a life drawing. He agrees. She is flattered. He goes to her rooms in the evening. They are suffused with candlelight, glowing and shadowy. The children, her little sisters and brothers, are there and they crowd into the bedroom where the young man is to pose. It is a beautiful scene, this young man naked on the large, high bed. The candlelight emphasises the folds in the dishevelled linen sheets. Everything is golden, shadowy, heavy and beautiful. Everyone is happy. It takes all night to make the drawings, capturing that mood, that dark light in charcoal and chalks. The next morning the dark-haired girl meets the redhead and asks her if she knows where her lover spent the night. She then proceeds to inform her, omitting the information which she knows about the art exhibition, and allowing the redhead to assume, as she is intended to, that her lover is having an affair with the blonde. The red-haired girl simply goes to the station and boards a white train. The dark-haired girl and her mother are there to see her off. The train sets off into the desert pale stretches of sandy ground. Eventually the train stops. It is not exactly a station, but it is a stopping place next to some habitation. It's where the blacks live. Here black men and women live in a kind of shanty town in the desert. They work all day, moving things around, collecting food, and they all work together, singing as they go. At night they sit around fires lit in old oil drums and tell stories. The girl stays with them. She works with them. She is happy and yet she is not of them. She does not belong. She gets on the train and continues her journey. Now the white train is moving into whiteness. There is no vegetation at all. Is it sand or snow? Where is the edge? Train and ground and sky are all one. Back at the big building, the dark-haired girl has revealed her treachery and so everyone knows the red-haired girl is gone. Gone for good. The young man is disturbingly unperturbed. The other two girls are distraught, especially the dark-haired one. All three of them realize that they never knew where the girl lived, so they they go together to see. It is downstairs, but inside the big building. It is a cell, stone walls, an iron bed, one blanket. The only personal item is a small blue plastic Christmas tree. They all know this is the only present the young man ever gave her. It is all that remains of her. There is a feeling of such sadness. Returning to the Kawan of snow in a silver bowl via other sisters and more snow, I was able to delight in the way that working with Kawans is part of a vast dance. It dances itself in dreams and in telephone calls just as much as in the Doxone room. I am reminded of Men's caution. To treat each thought as realisation is to trifle with your spirit. There is danger here. Yet, like discovering that the ubiquitous parking spaces that come with years of Zazen are a shared secret, there is a sense of Sangha involved. When the dance, I thought I was dancing alone in the universe, turns out to be choreographed to link to an infinite cast across the boundary of dream and distance.